Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Pharmacists by Design members get 30 minutes of CE just for listening to this podcast and answering a couple of questions. Join Pharmacists by Design today and make getting CE easier. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University and Internal Medicine Clinical Pharmacist at Iowa Methodist Medical Center. Today, we are going to talk about uh, COPD and in that we're going to talk about dupilumab. And uh, you know, this is an area that has garnered some interest, I think, in the last 50, uh, 10 or 15 years. And we'll kind of talk about, you know, why would you consider, you know, an, an anti-IL-4 drug in, in patients with, with COPD? Because it all comes back to the age-old question. I think something that, that pulmonologists have struggled with for many years is that, is COPD an inflammatory disease? Because when I came out of school, the answer was no. You know, that's what the O and COPD stands for, right? That's obstructive lung disease. There's something that is that is preventing exchange of gas. And that can usually be, it's often mucus plugs in patients who have chronic bronchitis, uh, the so-called blue bloaters. I don't know for the older listeners if they remember that. And then uh, the, the uh, or emphysema in the patients who, who uh, have difficulty exchanging gases because of emphysema, and we called them pink puffers. And that's all kind of gone, I think, a little bit by the, by the wayside because of the the one thing that we've learned, I think, in the last 15 years or so is that COPD is, in fact, many different phenotypes under one disease, under one disease umbrella, right? So uh, people can have very, very different phenotypic presentations for COPD, even though they have the same kind of umbrella type of, of, of diagnosis. And we know for a fact now that, that some COPD is associated with standard inflammation and, you know, how we define that and, and, and you, know, you know, all those sort of things is still really up in the air. And there's a lot of research going on here. Many of these patients are thought to have the so-called asthma COPD overlap syndrome, which is great. I think I, I'm not really sure when it comes to treatment, uh, you know, other than uh, than trying to identify patients who might have an inflammatory component to their COPD and targeting therapy against inflammation. I think for the boots on the ground pharmacists and providers, I'm not really sure doing a deep dive into figuring out exactly what type of inflammation they have is going to be all that helpful. But we we in the last certainly several years have started to realize that patients with so-called type two inflammation, which is inflammation mediated by several interleukins and the eosinophils, that those type of patients act actually uh, more like asthma patients and COPD patients. So even though they have obstructive lung disease, it in fact uh, does respond to anti-inflammatories. And the new uh, gold guidelines point this out and say, you know, uh, we should really be targeting inhaled corticosteroid treatments in patients who have this type two inflammation. And one of the things that's been looked at for a while is, is, is can we find an easy and accurate marker to tell the, the clinician that, yeah, this is type two inflammation or no, this patient doesn't have that. And while we don't have super sensitive or specific markers at this point, almost everybody, including the gold guidelines, is recommending using peripheral blood eosinophil levels. And it depends on, on which expert you talk to, but certainly everybody I think agrees that the threshold of at least a blood eosinophil count of over 300 uh, does increase the risk of the patient has so-called type two inflammation with their COPD. 
So what do you do with this information? Well, in, in these patients, we know that inhaled corticosteroids seem to be particularly beneficial. Um, in patients who don't have type 2 inflammation, uh, inhaled corticosteroids are probably much less beneficial unless they have very frequent exacerbations, and then uh, there, there may be a benefit for them as well. The problem, of course, has always been that inhaled corticosteroids are expensive, they have their own set of side effects, and if you remember the TORC study that was published back in 2008, uh, the, the decrease in hospitalizations in patients who had uh, acute exacerbations of COPD who are on inhaled corticosteroids was offset by an increased admission for pneumonia. So for all those reasons, you know, the, the kind of, well, we'll just throw the kitchen sink at these patients and see what happens. I was always a little bit kind of un, uh, uh, uneasy about, and I was glad that we were able to find, you know, some relatively easy marker that tells us, gee, these patients are the ones who are most likely going to benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. But since this is type two inflammation, is it possible that they they will also have uh, uh, benefits from other drugs that are anti-inflammatories. And that's kind of where we get into biologics. Now, currently, uh, there have been several um, uh, biologic studies with COPD, and they've largely been inconclusive, uh, particularly drugs that block the uh, IL-5 pathway have been looked at in patients with COPD. And, and again, these studies didn't tend to target patients with type 2 uh, inflammation, but really found that, you know, there was not a lot of really good evidence to show that they improved lung function, increased quality of life, uh, any of those things, despite the fact that, that when they measured blood eosinophils in these patients who were receiving interleukin-5 blockers, that they, that they did go down. So now we're taking a look at dupilumab. Dupilumab has kind of become the, the jack of all trades for, for anti-inflammatory biologics. Basically, if, if eosinophils or inter, uh, immune globulin E plays a role in the pathophysiology of, of this disease, dupilumab is going to work against it and work quite well. It's approved for a wide variety of atopic diseases, including asthma, atopic dermatitis, uh, some of the other really bad inflammatory conditions that uh, dermatologists see, eosinophilic esophagitis for the gastroenterologist. Again, basically that anything has to do or driven by eosinophils uh, um, or, or uh, immune globulin E, dupilumab seems to work quite well against and seems to be pretty well tolerated compared to other biologics. So the question, a paper that was published uh, uh, just a couple weeks ago in the Wound Journal of Medicine wanted to ask that question. If we can target patients who have type 2 uh, uh, inflammation with COPD, will they benefit from being on dupilumab? And that was the uh, Borea study. This study was a phase three multicenter international double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study done in 24 countries. Uh, the, they met patients who met the el eligibility criteria during a four-week run-in period were then randomly assigned into one-to-one -one ratio to receive subcutaneous dupilumab as add-on therapy at 300 milligrams or matching placebo once every two weeks for a year. So it was a fairly long study, which is, I, I was very glad to see. Now, one of the big uh, issues with this study, I think, is the very, very in-depth inclusion criteria. And I think uh, the, uh, the editorialist who, whose uh, paper accompanied this, this study kind of agreed that with, I kind of agreed with them that you know the, the results of the study, unfortunately, are only going to really affect a very, very narrow swath of COPD patients uh, because of, of the tight exclusion and, and inclusion criteria.
curious. So who could they be in? Patients had to be over age 40, but less than 80. They again had to have that bloody eosinophil level of greater than 300. And again, that's a pretty high mark. I think you're, you're going to find that, that, that many, if not most COPD patients aren't going to have eosinophil levels that high. Um, they had to have a primary uh, physician diagnosis of COPD. And it wasn't just, gee, someone told me I had COPD. They actually had to have a pulmonary function test that really met the kind of standard uh, definitions that, you know, they, they had to have uh, FEVs that were greater than 30%, but less than 70% predicted. So kind of moderate level at, uh, lung and function. They had to have symptoms based on the MRC dyspnea scale. They had to have no other symptoms or no other reasons for their chronic cough. But here's the kicky, the kicker. The kicker is that they had to have at least one moderate to severe exacerbation while they were taking triple therapy. So they had to be on an inhaled corticosteroid, a LAMA and a LABA, and still have a moderate to severe exacerbation. So that kind of tells you right there that these are pretty severe COPD patients that are already kind of on max therapy as, as it were. Um, and they had to be on that uh, for, for at least a month triple therapy before they could be uh, involved in the study. They uh, defined moderate exacerbations as, as exacerbations that required oral medications and, and required a visit to a healthcare center, whereas severe uh, uh, exacerbations were patients who had to spend at least 24 hours either in a hospital or an emergency department or an urgent care facility. They excluded, again, a number of patients, anyone who had a history of asthma, as you might imagine, people who had other types of lung disease like lung fibrosis, interstitial lung disease, pulmonary hypertension. They couldn't have core pulmonale, so they couldn't have severe enough COPD that they were starting to get right heart failure. They couldn't be on oxygen for more than 12 hours a day. So again, super severe patients were largely excluded uh, from these patients and then a variety of other disease states, such as tuberculosis and things like that. So, you know, again, a very, very, very kind of narrow group of patients who were uh, allowed to be in the study. Now I get why, because, you know, again, since COPD is, is, is such a, uh, a different phenotypic type of disease, you really wanted to target the patients who really only had type two inflammatory COPD. But of course that, that limits the generalizability of the study, right? So once that was done, again, they were randomized to, to either subcutaneous dipilomab or, or placebo, and they did run the study for at least a year. The primary endpoint was an annualized rate of moderate or severe exacerbations during the, the 52 week period. And again, moderate exacerbations uh, were defined as exacerbations that required treatment with, with a uh, systemic corticosteroid and antibiotic agent or both, and severes led to hospitalization or an emergency room uh, visit or one that then ended up in death. Uh, secondary endpoints were numerous, as you might imagine, uh, like uh, change in FEV1 at weeks 12 and 52, change in baseline pre-dump bronchodilator FEV1 at weeks 12 and 52 as well. They measured uh, FENO levels. They also did the uh, St. George Respiratory Questionnaire, which is the standard, uh, very long <laughs> and very complicated questionnaire that looks at quality of life in patients with COPD, and it's been the standard one that, that, that's been used for, for many, many times. Uh, they did count uh, a minimum clinically important differences, at least four points improvement in the SGR. RQ, so kind of keep that in mind. And then they also looked at a variety of other secondary outpoints or endpoints as well. As far as the statistics were concerned, uh, they had a, they estimated that they'd need about 1,000 patients, 924 in total for it to be exact, 462 in each trial group that provide the trial with a 90% power to detect an, uh, the teen group difference of an annualized rate of, of an exacerbation of 25%. So basically, uh, they needed about 1,000 patients to show that you could see about a 25% relative risk drop in moderate severe exacerbation patients at one year. They did. 
statistics I wasn't really familiar with. They used the negative binomial model. So I did a little research on this. It certainly seems reasonable for what they were trying to do. Um, I knew that in this kind of study, you'd have to have some sort of regression analysis or some other form of, of statistics where you, you adjusted for uh, different uh, patient factors, you know, uh, how many inhalers are they on to begin with? Were they smokers? Were they not? How long have they had COPD? Were they on oxygen or not? There's a lot of covariates that you could think about. So I knew they were going to have to do something like that. And, and this bi negative binomial model seemed to do that. It, it seemed to, to account for a wide variety of different covariates to kind of look and see if anything was, was, was impacting the out outcomes. So uh, what did they find? Well, uh, we are going to talk about that after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about Pharmacist by Design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. So we're back talking about dupilumab use in uh, COPD in a paper just recently published in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, again, a study going on for about a year with about a thousand patients in it, uh, talking about the results from May 2019 to February 2022, a total of about 939 patients underwent randomization, 468 to the dupilumab group and 471 to the placebo group. A very high percentage of patients, almost 100% of patients in both groups did complete the 52-week trial. It's pretty impressive, I think. Uh, when you take a look at the uh, baseline characteristics between them, they were completely similar between the two groups, but most importantly, I think they were largely the kind of patients I would see with COPD, uh, mean age 65, 68% um, uh, male, uh, the vast majority Caucasian, though there was a significant minority of, of uh, uh, Hispanic or Latino patients, about 31% uh, of patients were current smokers, but they all were smokers at one point in time. Pack year history was pretty high at 40 across the board. Uh, one thing that would be a little low in my world would be a body, body mass index of 27. So that was actually uh, uh, pretty much across the board. And 98% of these patients entered the study on triple therapy. Um, and about 30 of them on that triple therapy were receiving inhaled high dose of glucocorticoids. Uh, here's another very interesting piece of, of the background stuff. The mean blood eosinophil Counter randomization was over 400 in, in, in these patient groups. And again, far higher than I've uh, traditionally seen uh, when, when you look at COPD patients. So, uh, you know, again, you know, if 300 is the cutoff, these patients definitely met the criteria for type 2 inflammation with, with their COPD. Uh, they had had at least two uh, uh, moderate or severe exacerbations in the past year, and their FEV1 uh, basically was 50% uh, of the predicted volume. So, again, definitely moderate to severe COPD in these patients. So what did they find? Well, remember the primary endpoint was the annualized rate of moderate or severe exacerbations of COPD. And that occurred in 1.1, that was the annual rate was, was, was 1.1 exacerbations in the placebo group compared to 0.78 exacerbations in the dupilumab group. And that was statistically significant uh, at, at zero, P less than 001. Uh, secondary outpoints, when they looked at change in prebronchodilator FEB1 to week 
52. Uh, they found that that there was actually an improvement in, in uh, prebronchodilar FFP1 in the dupilumab group, whereas a slight decrease in the placebo group. And again, that was highly statistically significant. Uh, when they looked at uh, changes in the St. George Respiratory Questionnaire, uh, they found that it decreased by uh, 6.4 uh, points in the placebo group and actually uh, um, uh, about 10 points in the dupilumab group. And again, was statistically significant. So the percentage of patients who had an improvement of greater than four points of week 52 was 43% of patients, the placebo arm and 51% of patients in the dupilumab arm. I think there's obviously some placebo effect going on there, but that was still statistically significant. So when you break it all down and you take a look at the number of patients who had a moderate to severe exacerbation in that year in the placebo arm versus the number of patients who had a moderate to a severe uh, CO, uh, exacerbation COPD in the dupilumab arm, it basically decreased the rate of those uh, exacerbations exacerbations by about 40%. And the number needed to treat to prevent one uh, COPD exacerbation was only four. So very powerful information in this in, in these patients that you don't have to treat four patients with, with the Tilmap 2 to prevent one COPD exacerbation. Now, it is worth noting that uh, when they took a look at moderate severe, the overwhelming uh, benefit in this study was for moderate exacerbation. So uh, exactly how many hospitalizations you prevent, uh, I, I think that that uh, is going to be a post hoc analysis that kind of takes a look at this. But bottom line was that in this very narrow pa patient population, um, uh, it, it, it's the uh, results seem to have a very, very high uh, uh, treatment effect with the number needed to treat a four. Getting into the safety of the dupilumab, like again, almost everybody in both groups completed the study. When they took a look at, at percentages of patients who re reported a side effect, it was similar between the groups, 77% in the dupilumab group and 76 in the placebo group. Uh, the most uh, uh, common adverse effects were very you know, generic things like urinary tract infections, respiratory tract infections, and headache. Uh, severe adverse effects reported actually in fewer patients in the dupilumab group uh, than in the placebo group. Um, and, and surprisingly, there were no reports of conjunctivitis, which is actually in the package inserted dupilumab is one of the, the side effects you have to watch out for. And I've certainly seen that a couple of times in these patients. So in this study, uh, they actually did not see a increase of, of uh, cases of conjunctivitis in, in the dupilumab arm compared to placebo. So kind of surprising there. So the authors then kind of take a look at the study and, and they note that, you know, in this very, very narrow patient population, it certainly seems that dupilumab uh, has has a, a fairly strong benefit, especially when you take a look at, at at the side effects that you're decreasing exacerbation significantly, that you're improving uh, St. George respiratory questionnaires, you're also improving FEV1 in, in these patients. But they also note that uh, this is not a cheap therapy. Um, dupilumab is a biologic and it is quite expensive. And uh, you know, even with the number needed to treat a four, given the high number of patients with COPD who might be candidates for this, and they say somewhere between 10 to 30% of all COPD patients are type two inflammation patients. Let's say half of those uh, would be put on dupilumab. Uh, you're talking uh, a very high price tag for this. And uh, as always, insurance companies, I think are going to be very reluctant um, to, to, to put patients on this, even if you could show them, look, if we can avoid, you know, four, you know, or five hospitalizations that pays for several patients right there. Um, as we all know, sometimes insurance companies aren't really good at thinking those kinds 
kind of things through. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how that happens as far as insurance. And so the, the authors note that as well. They note um, that the study was done during the, uh, the pandemic. And so of course, you know, I think we're going to see this kind of, of, of disclaimer in, in every study that's been uh, going to be published in the next five years that, you know, okay, the, you know, COVID happened right in the middle of this. We're not really sure how that affected the patient exposures, clinical research, you know, how, how we basically would have done the study might have been affected. So just, you know, keep that in mind. And I mean, I think at this point, we just need to put a disclaimer, like right at the start of every single study saying this study was done during COVID. So just kind of keep that in mind, because I mean, all these studies will have been done during that. They uh, note the low incidence of exacerbations observed in the trial. Um, uh, and, and so I think they were expecting to see more exacerbations than they did. Nevertheless, they did find that even, even so, Dupilumab was had a, a robust effect and it was consistent across uh, uh, the, the patients in the study and the different countries they looked at, et cetera, et cetera. The, as I said, the, the uh, editorialist who reviewed this, uh, you know, could really comment on this and said, yeah, this is a pretty solid study. There's not a lot of issues or problems. You know, in fact, you know, it's all going to come down to a, this very selective patient population should, you know, uh, if, if people are thinking about doing this, you, you're going to have to make sure that they kind of meet the inclusion and exclusion criteria of the study. I guarantee that that insurance companies who do allow the use of Dupilumab for COPD are going to we'll make sure these patients check all those boxes. Um, the, the pulmonology group I'm working with is using some biologics now for asthma. And I've, you know, they've already been talking to me about the possibility of kind of adding this uh, to their arsenal. But I think other pulmonology groups, especially solo uh, practices may not be doing a lot of biologics. So again, there, there may be some uh, uh, infrastructure issues uh, if in getting this started and, and you know, even if pulmonologists are looking to, to do this in patients, there may be some time that they have to kind of build the structure so they can do that, make sure the prior offs are all filled out and stuff like that. Uh, again, noticing kind of surprisingly, there wasn't any real conjunctivitis reported in the study. And I think that if you take a look at the asthma studies and you take a look at the atopic dermatitis studies, it's something that has definitely been reported. And I think it's something that we do have to kind of think about as, as we kind of go along here. So bottom line is, you know, yes, in this very, very specific patient population, Dupilumab uh, did another home run basically and, and with a very robust uh, treatment arm. Um, so I think I think we'll, we'll, we'll see where this comes along, but I think it's primarily going going to be more, more information about access and, and insurance company payment more than really anything else. So, uh, you know, uh, it'll, I guess what was remained to be seen, but I think for, for the, the people who deal with lung disease who are listening to the podcast, this is definitely another arrow in your quiver for this very select patient population. And um, I, am, I have no doubt that, you know, cost-effective studies and things like that will be going on to try and figure out, you know, is this, you know, it's an expensive therapy. If we can avoid hospitalizations, visits the emergency room, will it actually pay for itself in, in these severe patients. So that's it for this week's uh, episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening. As I, as I always say, we will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.